repels me. What the fuck's the matter with these cunts? What's the matter with them? They must be on some fucking mega ego shit, these guys. We got horses and bloody ducks. The whole part of being a rock star is being a rock star. And what the rock stars do, you get a limo, you get a laser, you got people running around licking your ass. I get nicknamed Nibby. Uh, I looked at Bill Wood and he had this big long beard. And I said, you look like a pen nib. Hello, all my zoomers. Very strange, and, and geese in particular had all sorts of weird dreams and weird thoughts. And it might have been the acid on them. What is it? It's Sabbath Bloody Podcast. A sabography for the masses. Welcome! Today we are going through the self-titled debut, Black Sabbath. I got my black brew, my plan of doom ready, poured and settled, so... Cheers. I imagine most people will start off here, right? Episode one. But this isn't the first installment of Sabbath Bloody Podcast. If you really want to get on from the start, then go back and check out the Zero episode I did a few weeks back, where I cover pre-Sabbath era, the origins of the four primary band members, the real nitty-gritty. It's a little shaky, and I had to listen to it back, and I was thinking about just giving up, but <laughs> I'm still getting the hang of this podcasting game. But today, I'm going to more or less just pick up from there so we can really get into it today because it's a long, dark, black road ahead of us, friends. When we last left off, the lineup was solidified. You have Ozzy Osbourne on vocals, Tony Iommi on the guitar, Geezer Butler on bass and the primary lyricist, and Bill Ward on the drums. They were, at this point, a blues cover band but they were showing some heavy, dark tendencies to their playing approach. Known then as Earth, they'd begun touring outside the UK, hitting Germany, Scandinavia, but still, they're not the full-on, like, gothic rock stars that we've come to associate with Sabbath. At this point, they were dressed pretty much in your typical grubby blues band get-up, you know, jeans and charity shop blazers, and they look like proper hipsters, actually, like, especially Bill. He's got these tight little, like, pajama-looking tops on with star patterns and paisley everywhere. And that big old beard. What I'm saying is, if you're familiar with the new Sabbath, like the reunion era and such, Iomi and Geezer with all the leathers on and the crosses and the purple sunglasses, Ozzy with the guy liner and the full sleeve tattoos, then it might be shocking to you to look back at, like, the early band picks. Because they were really just a bunch of kids still. I mean, Ozzy had a bit of ink on, uh, just like the trademark knuckles and a smattering of other self-inflicted prison-style tats. And at this point, they were pretty much broke, still living in their parents' gaffs. Bill and Tony had been somewhat successful with their previous band mythology, but they didn't have anything to show for it, besides an old rusted police van that they toured around in. They were a little strung out as well. Ozzy was already popping pills and tripping out and they were all smoking weed, and they were all pounding the pints. It was just the cheaper, more accessible vices at this point. They did rule their local by the sounds of it. Some good pub stories come out when they're shooting the shit in some of these recent interviews that are out. I pulled a couple of them here to throw in, just to give you a flavor of their maturity level around this time. I'll tell you a story. We had a die off one time, and... Uh, we all went to the bar and got absolutely mindless in the bar. I don't think Tony was there. So I'm sitting over one side of this bar, and Bill is sitting at the bar, and he had a big beard in those days. And the bartender 
didn't know that Tony was knew us, and we were, me and Bill were absolutely shit-faced. So then all of a sudden, it's about 7 o'clock in the evening, and Geezer walks in, and he gets drunk, and, and, he's, and nobody knows that we were all together, you know. So Tony walks in, and he's the only straight one amongst us, and he walks to the bar, and he, Bill's sitting there, and then he's like this, <laughs> I'm down over the other side getting these cocktails down me. And, the, and he goes to the bartender, and he goes, excuse me, sir, he says, do you have a match? And he goes, no, sir, but I have a lighter. He says, uh, can I borrow your lighter? He says, certainly, sir. So he lights his lighter, and Bill's sitting there, just like nothing's going wrong, and he sets fire to his beard. And it's like a brush fire, and he goes... <laughs> and his flames start going over his face, and he gets a glass of water, and the bartender's mouth is now like... <laughs> and he throws a drink. All of a sudden, this bar turns into, like, one of these Keystone Cup fights, and everything starts flying out. The next minute I do it, Big E's is being dragged out, he's drunk, and he's got a cop and with a gun to his head, and he's shouting to the cop, go on, fucking shoot me, I'll die for Aston Villa. Now, Aston Villa is a soccer team that he supports in England, and it was just one of those crazy fucking nice men. And, and, and Bill's sitting about quite nonchalant with a fucking cocktail, and Tony pours a glass of water over his head, puts his face out, and he inhales the smoke, and the, the bartender is now in rigid shock, and he goes, he goes, not a bad smoke. <laughs> well, isn't that a funny story? It wasn't all piss-ups. They were also now focusing in on making a go of it all. Tony kind of took on the unofficial leader position in the band, and so that's pretty much where we were at after the last installment. So you don't really have to go back and listen to it if you don't want. But known then as the band Earth, by late 1969, they pretty much had a full set of originals ready to rock. They were all committed to making a go of it. They didn't have any real fallback plans. And they had songs like NIB, Wicked World. So they were well-armed when they finally got a deal to cut their first LP on October 12th, 1969. Why the name Black Sabbath? Let's first let the boys tell the story of the name change. Because I swear, every goddamn interview I check out... They ask for this story. Well, why Black Sabbath? Why so evil? <laughs> why not Rainbow? <laughs> At the time, I was happily into the occult and stuff. Not Satan or anything like that, just learning about astral plane and all that cobblers. I suggested, among other things, Black Sabbath, and everyone went, oh, yeah, it's a good name. The first song we, we wrote was actually Wicked World. And then the second song was Black Sabbath. All the songs were written basically the same. We'd go into a rehearsal room with nothing and then just start jamming about and come up. And it's peculiar how it all happened because they sort of came one after another without having to sit there going, oh, I don't know, I can't think of anything. They were just coming out and it was almost like a magical force pushing these things out that we, we didn't understand. Sometime in late 1969, October 12th on my little chart here, the lads got booked into Regent Sound Studios in London to record their first LP. The session lasted 12 hours, and it was pretty much one take, maybe a few overdubs on guitar here and there. And then they just left the rest to the record label and producer, and they fucked off to do more gigs. For pretty much live off the floor, this album is incredible. I mean, their pre-production was basically just gigging the shit out of the tracks, and they just went in and recorded it. Isolated Ozzy in a booth, so... You're able to find some instrumental versions about. I'm sure the lads would have been pleased when they heard the final mixes. Personnel, here we go. Roger Bain, production. Also credited with playing the Jews harp on Sleeping Village. 
And then you got Tom Allum and Barry Sheffield Engineering. Great work, lads. It holds up. Let's talk about the album's artwork here, that creepy-ass cover. So this was a big part of the new image of the band. The original sleeve was pretty controversial for its time. You gotta remember all the flower power bullshit that was going on in 1969. This was pretty dark stuff, especially the gatefold. It had this big inverted cross, which apparently was a misprinting or something, and the band had no idea that it was gonna be in there, but I think someone must have picked up on the feel of the album and just went for it, went full Satan. You got this inverted cross with a short poem, which I got here. I'll read it out. Thankfully, it's not Latin or some shit. But I don't think Geezer wrote this. It would have been some bloke at Vertigo or something. Some Somebody in management. Okay. <laughs> Here's my best Edgar Allan Poe. Wait, a little beer. From my throat. <laughs> Sabbath bloody poetry jam here. Still falls the rain. The veils of darkness shroud the blackened trees, which, contoured by some unseen violence, shed their tired leaves and bend their boughs toward the gray sky of the severed bird wings. Among the grasses, poppies bleed before a gesticulating death, and young rabbits born dead in traps stand motionless, as though guarding the silence that surrounds and threatens to engulf all those who would listen. Mute birds, tired of repeating yesterday's terrors, hurtle together in the recesses of the dark corners, heads turned from the dead, black swan that floats upturned in a small pool in the hollow. There emerges from this pool a faint sensual mist that traces its way upward to caress the chipped feet of the headless martyr's statue. Is, is that the headless cross, maybe? A little foreshadowing there. The headless martyr statue, whose only achievement was to die too soon, and who wouldn't wait to lose. <laughs> Man, this is long. <laughs> the cataracts of darkness form fully. The long black night begins, yet still, by the lake, a young girl waits. Unseeing, she believes herself unseen. She smiles faintly at the distant tolling bell, and still. <laughs> Fuck yeah, we're into the good shit now, lads. <laughs> That's some creepy shit, though, right? Especially when you hear all the stories about no one knowing anything about the photo shoot for the cover. and It's this goth chick standing by a river, like a Mona Lisa-looking witchy woman, kind of smiling. I used to think it was Ozzy, actually. <laughs> she kind of looks like Ozzy. Okay, so the lyrics were penned by one geezer butler, and they are based on an apparition he claims to have seen. So this stuff is pretty well known. They have quite a few ghost stories, actually. I don't know if they're taking the piss on some of them, but they seem to believe in the supernatural for sure. But they also did do lots of smack through the years, so there's that. <laughs> but Geezer claims that a woman in black visited him one night. The, f the figure in black, which points at me, he apparently threw a book at her and she disappeared or some shit like that. But it spooked him. So he, he sat down and wrote a song about it. It's really like a manifesto of sorts for the band moving forward for what they wanted to become. They wanted to be like the horror films of music, freak people out, and this is that, man. Like, they never do another one that's more like freaky than this. This is, this is it. Are oh, the riff compels me. Won't you listen? Okay, the power of the riff truly compels me today. I got my bass in hand here. seems to be coming through all right there. 
apologies if this is kind of a dry tone. I'm just DIing into audition here. I do have a little amp simulator plug-in thing running here, so it shouldn't sound totally dead. It sounds all right in the cans here. Yeah, so I needed to have the bass out here for the Black Sabbath debut because Geezer fucking owns this album. So it kicks off with the self-titled song from the self-titled band, Black Sabbath. Yeah, that's how it all begins. Those three notes there. A tritone in the key of G here. But really, we all know it's in the key of motherfucking Lucifer, right? <laughs> all kidding aside, this is still a creepy-ass song, man. Everything from the bells and thunder to that tritone and Bill's echoing drum sound in the track is equally as haunting to me. I'm hard-pressed to find another song as atmospheric as this in any band's catalog, really. I mean, maybe Floyd for sure, but, I mean, horror-wise, that spook show, baby, come on. This is from fucking 1972, so. And, of course, Ozzy's pain-ridden vocals. Oh, God, God, please help me. <laughs> I remember as a kid being like, Daddy, what are they doing to Ozzy? <laughs> Combine that with the cover of the album, you got instant nightmares, son. For the track, riff-wise, let's actually hear from the man himself, Geezer Butler. All hail. Speaking about the opening track here, playing a little bass for us too in there. I was a medium-sized fan of uh, Holt's The Planet Suite, particularly Mars in those days. And one of the days I was in the... Uh, we were rehearsing and I was going... Trying to play Mars... And then the next day, Tony went in and went. And that's the way how uh, Black Sabbath came about. Our first guest player on the show, other than Ben. We got Geese, right? <laughs> I told you these segments would be cool. Yeah, so Holt's Planet Suite, Mars specifically. Go find that one for reference. And the song is an amazing lead-off for the band, though. A manifesto for all the evil shit that is to come with the sabs and talk about setting the tone for the next 50 years here this is the true beginning if you're selling people on selling their souls and shit the title of the track black sabbath was pulled from a mario bava horror flick which came out around the mid 60s and geezer had stumbled across the marquee in birmingham and there's a big queue of people lining up to see it everyone has heard the story before he was playing across the street from their jam space or some shit and as Geezer said, he brought it to the boys, suggested his name, and they were like, that's fucking badass, let's do it. For a debut song, doesn't get much more powerful than this. I mean, tell me another band that has as cool a fucking self-titled lead-off song as this. Vitus, maybe. Motorhead. Motorhead, remember me now, Motorhead, all right. <laughs> Still, nowhere near that, what is this that stands before me? Right out the gate with the sinister shit here. That's our boys. And look at their contemporaries, 1970. It would have been like this and fucking, hey, hey, we're the monkeys. <laughs> that kind of shite. So they were definitely ruling the roost as far as evil flavors went. Let's go to the second track, which was The Wizard. Let's hear our riff lord Ben play this one out. Sans harmonica, of course. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
line with the grubby blues band that they were coming from. I think this was an early B-side, actually, a 1969 pre-Black Sabbath track that they polished up and reworked. I've heard that it's made it into some of the Earth sets, and so consider this an oldie. A fan favorite, too. I've never been that big on it, though. I mean, Ozzy shreds the harmonica, which is kind of cool. More or less your typical blues structure, though. It's solid. Geezer, of course, with some octave runs in there. Brings that special sauce, right? Spreading his magic. Yeah, it's a cool jam, but it's not really one of the highlights from this LP for me. It's not album filler by any means. It still rocks, but not a standout in my opinion as far as originality. Let's keep moving through the track list here. On to the next one, the next batch really. This is where they hammer in that true Sab's evil flavor a little more. Get my attention. The first of many multi-titled tracks, a medley of sorts, I guess you could call it. This is Wasp slash Behind the Wall of Sleep slash basically slash NIB, the iconic NIB, which isn't Nativity in Black, as many claim. It was actually a reference to Bill Ward's beard at the time that Ozzy said looked like a pen nib, and so they called him Nibby. So NIB is really nib. This whole batch of songs is great. They all kind of flow together on the record. I never listened to one without the others, really. And as time has gone on, the tracks have been pressed on many different formats and chopped up for digital distribution and such. It's kind of become known as two parts, essentially. You got Behind the Wall of Sleep and NIB. But just for reference, for the old school vinyl freaks like myself, the intro to Behind the Wall of Sleep is known as Wasp. And I love that bass look in there. Just a... Fucking one of my favorites to play, hell. It's one of the coolest geezer riffs in my opinion. I might not play it the same as geezer here, but he does something similar to this. He starts in that, what is that, third position? I, I'm not a theory cat, don't look for that shit here. A music lesson dropout actually, as I'm sure you can tell. But from that low B note, he kind of gives some octave love down low. They kind of slip into this kind of waltz time here, which is fucking great, a little groove. Then Geezer racks it up high mid-measure and catches that little riff. Yeah, Geezer really dances behind Tony's droning riff. Then into that blues call and response vocal section that gets us right into Wall of Sleep proper. The track actually modulates up a full tone after the intro. This is something that the Sabs do on the reg, like on Fairies Wear Boots and a bunch of tracks on Master of Reality. Changes the mood, really creates separation within a song, and a lift for the hook, which is what Sabbath is all about. You'll hear me talk about the lift a lot with the Sabs. It's, they really perfect it by Never Say Die, and it's something that I really love about their music. It's almost a pop sensibility thing, like making a chorus really memorable or a hook. Actually, I'll drop in on Ben's riff here for Behind the Wall of Sleep, just for the crack. A rough approximation of the magic that is Geezer and Tony on this track. Very rough. Here we go. No counting, so I'll just fucking hit this and... Ah, fuck. My bad. Catch him on the second one. 
All right, here we go. the idea <laughs> hopefully i didn't just kill it for you there i fucking love this track that's the top riff from this lp for me so it gets the flag today Power of the riff compels me this song really shows their style on the album it's a great representation of the roots of where they were coming from that real bluesy stuff as well as the more original vibes that they're bringing in they're not just playing your straight ahead blues there's a lot of fucking new flavor coming in originality and that line in the chorus, sleeping wall of remorse turns your body into a corpse. That's some dark shit right there, right? I used to think it was more sinister than that even. I thought he said, if you want our remorse, then turn your body into a corpse. Like, if you're looking for me to show you remorse, then fucking kill yourself. <laughs> That's more heavy, right? So Bill plays out the song with this great boom, 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 like a little bonzo right foot shuffle. And then, well, I don't have a wall here, so I can't really do it justice, but... Geezer kind of messes about in this little blues box, an E minor thing. This is blues bass 101, really. You know, in there, it's fucking rad, though. Geezer bends in there. I fucking worship those with every fiber of my black soul. He's one of the first to use a wah pedal with a bass, too, way before Cliff Burton. And, and you can hear Geezer clicking it on and fucking with his volume jack on the actual record. I love that. It just brings out how fucking off the floor this album is, adding to the overall impressiveness of the effort, really. They sound so fucking good on this album, especially the remasters. But yeah, he grabbed Tony's wall and he laid down that amazing solo, leading into the most iconic bass riff of all time, right? The big fucking overdriven NIB. I gotta hit a dirty channel for this part. How do I do that in here? Here. Okay, how's that? I am the one orgasmatron. <laughs> it's not quite Lemmy level, but it'll do for this shit. You all know this one, fuck. Super fun one to play. Like any geezer follower, this is the first thing your hand goes to when you pick up a bass, right? It has been for me for years. Let's just give this one a flag for today, shall we? <laughs> like you already gave it to Behind the Wall Sleep. Yeah, yeah, we're taking it off Behind the Wall Sleep. We're giving it to NIB. Power of the riff compels me. And here's what Tony plays on it. <laughs> Damn, those little trills and tails, fucking amazing. So from that point, in my opinion, the album kind of goes downhill as far as real power riffing. NIB is the height. Killer height, so I still do adore this LP overall, but the B-side though, Tony starts blues wanking a little bit too much on the guitar. Wicked World is the only track that kind of connects with me over there. 
And that was only on the North American release, I think. So Brit's got that turd that is evil woman, right? Boring, right? Both those cover songs, Warning and Evil Woman, I don't like either of them, to be honest. Just standard blues fare. Anyway, I kind of check out on the album from that point. So the debut doesn't really rank high with me as far as Sabbath albums go. Let's play Ben's take on Wicked World, though, because that's a highlight of the B-side for me. This is the first track you get when you flip the U.S. pressing, and it's a real cool song, actually. And just to show you how deep into the void our riff lord is, he busts out a strat on this song. Get that authentic Wicked World tone. Because as I'll touch on later in a gear segment that I'm going to do, this is the only track on the album not played on Tony's SG. It's played on a white strat before it legit died during the recordings. So Ben also has a white strat in his arsenal, being the Jeff Beck freak that he is. Here's his Wicked World playthrough. That's a cool riff for sure. Like I said, this is the only real track on the B-side that I dig on the self-titled album. There's some serious swagger in the verses here too. sounds like it could be on Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, right? I think this is how Tony plays it live, the, the version that Ben is playing here. The recorded version's a little less badass, actually. There's some definite added swagger in here. The rest of side two is another medley. You get a bit of finger, sleeping village, and warning. Warning's super bloated. And it's the height of Tony's blues wanking in places. And is really the track that kills this album for me. Not kills it, but, you know, puts it down below Volume 4, Master of Reality, most of the Aussie stuff, actually. His solos are big-time skippers on those tracks, especially that one where everyone cuts out and it's just him kind of masturbating the neck. I hate that. The Sleeping Village part is kind of cool, though. It's often overlooked on this album. It's really a brilliant interlude that's shoved in there and kind of the precursor for the vibey slow burns of Planet Caravan, Solitude, Laguna Sunrise all those interludes that he does a master of reality. I'll play that part for you, or have our old friend Ben play it for us. And also, Ben can be found at The Sterling Sound on YouTube, by the way. Check him out. He's going to be a regular part of these sessions. Don't worry, I'll stop plugging him every time, and I'll just play his riffs. But he's been kind enough to supply me with the cornucopia of Sabbath riffs here to fill the void of not having the rights to the source material. So go support him by liking and subbing his YouTube channel. Here's his sleeping village. Yeah, real cool atmosphere. This is buried deep on the B side. He's picking this little arpeggio deal. Super vibey. I wish 
that they just did a whole track like this. And Ozzy even sings some cool lines over it on the record. More Edgar Allan Poe-like geezer lyrics here. Red sun rising in the sky, sleeping village, cockerels cry, soft breeze blowing in the trees, peace of mind, feel at ease. Yeah, just stoner to the max there, I can dig. I'll actually go through the lyrics more on these segments too. But they don't stay too long in this vibe here. Tony busts into a big time riff. I still consider this riff here kind of part of Sleeping Village, but there is a key change into the same as Warning, I think. Here's that part. definite shift. Unfortunately, the brilliance really fades in the last part of this number, as we sink into a very standard rendition of an Ainsley Dunbar retaliation cover, which I've never really cared for, but whatever. It's a cover. I know I'm pretty hard on it saying that it ruins the album, but that's just because I'm big on the closers. I really want them to do something special on a record, to really take the record to that next level. It's not that bad. I mean, for some standard blues fare. I wouldn't mind hearing them play this live, but it is the wrong closer, if you ask me. It sours an otherwise classic LP, which they quickly remedy on Paranoid Forward, so I can't complain too much. So, solid debut, really, song-wise, but there is some filler in there, especially on side two. So I'm glad that this is the only time that they put covers on the record, because those selections kind of take away from the original material. And... And Poor Sleeping Village, it's just kind of lost in there. Such a cool bit that they could have really developed into something wicked, but but it's not given its own space. It's kind of lumped in with warning. That's the power of the riff for today. Power of the riff compels me. All right now. I've already finished my goddamn pint here. Black Sabbath, the album, ladies and gentlemen. Leave me a review in iTunes, good or bad. I want to improve the experience here. I also might set up a Twitter now, now that I have a legitimate sabbath album under my belt here so look for that i guess so until next time sleep tight supernauts in the sleeping village just behind the wall of sleep <laughs> all right signing off bog blast all you